Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today, we're talking about cardiac arrest. And specifically, we're talking about monitoring during cardiac arrest. And the vast majority of this episode will be on end tidal CO2. And I'm bringing back the maven of all things monitoring during cardiac arrest. He's doing his PhD thesis on the topic. And uh, let's see how my pronunciation is on this name, because I've been working on it hard. Let's try that one more time. Yeah, I think I'm getting it. Um, so Pio, as I call him, uh, actually uh, has been on once before. We talked about how we're totally screwing up uh, monitoring art lines during cardiac arrest. Now, that, that's kind of niche for a lot of you out there. You're not doing art lines during cardiac arrest. This one on entitled CO2, you all should be doing during cardiac arrest. So it's directly applicable, super important. You'll see some of the nuances. Um, the other thing is... We're going to be discussing a paper that's linked in the show notes to this episode. But what's key is that we're going to be discussing the uh, end tidal CO2 waveforms in the course of cardiac arrest and, and as they differ from uh, patients with uh, different degrees of thoracic distension. And it really, like a picture is worth a thousand words in this uh, vein. So you really want to just click on over to the episode for two seconds and just look at the pictures I have there. But I'm going to describe them briefly just as a lead-in because I think it'll contextualize everything that PO talks about. But normal end tidal CO2 pattern that you're all used to is, you know, there's like a half-second uh, inspiration during which the end tidal is reading zero. And then uh, as that starts flowing out towards the um, side flow or mainstream monitoring, you'll get this spike that'll stay up there for, I don't know, a second, second and a half, and then it's going to return back down to zero. You're all familiar with this. You see this all the time. And look, there's variances for asthma and other things, but you know what a standard end tidal CO2 waveform looks like. Uh, during cardiac arrest, it's different. In the uh, completely everything's going right pattern, what's going to happen is they're going to get that up spike, and then they're going to have these oscillations with each chest compression. And some of them, depending on the quality of the compressions, may even send the patient down to zero, and then it's going to spike back up. But that whole pattern is going to be up there completely between breaths. So if it's five or six seconds between breaths, you'll have end tidal CO2 above zero for that entire period of time, which is different than a standard waveform where there's like a good period of zero between each breath, you know, three seconds or so between each breath. And these oscillations make it look kind of like Bart Simpson's head. That's the regular pattern. Then we talk about interthoracic airway closure, where the small airways are actually closing in between breaths. And for that, you're going to get something that looks kind of like a normal end tidal CO2 non-cardiac arrest waveform. But instead of just being for a second, it's during the entire space between breaths. So it could be like a six-second cycle. There's none of these oscillations or very dampened oscillations from the chest compression. And there's an continuous uprising. The CO2 keeps going upwards uh, until the point of the end of that CO2 waveform during the uh, initiation of the next breath. So that looks normal, but it's not in two ways. One, it's much longer, right? It's the entire space between breaths. And um, it is usually higher than you would see the end tidal CO2 levels higher than you would see uh, in the normal pattern because they're not having this, uh, what is essentially apneic, uh, ventilations from the chest compressions. And then there's the thoracic 
distension pattern, which looks very much like the regular cardiac arrest pattern, but at the very beginning, you don't see the oscillations until enough of that gas leaves the chest during expiration uh, to actually allow those uh, oscillations to begin again. So now you have some context. I know that's all confusing. Take a look at the picture, but it will, even if you don't look at the picture, that will help contextualize everything PO and I talk about subsequent. Um, so let's roll right in. Well, you know, because of who you are, that we're not going to roll right in because you're listening to the full episode given for free of what is the paid podcast. And I do this because I don't want to lock down all of the episodes. So you're hearing this, but you should be hearing all the episodes. You're missing out. You're missing out on the best resuscitative care for your patients. You're missing out on being on the cutting edge of acute critical care. And you're missing out on all of the goodness that MCRIT has to offer because you're not a member. So you should consider joining. It's cheap. You get an insane amount of CME. And you then will know you are getting the most up-to-date, cutting-edge, acute critical care and resuscitation resuscitative knowledge for your patients. So if you want to get that, and everyone should if you're in emergency medicine or critical care, then come on over to mcrit.org slash join. That's mcrit.org slash join. Okay, let's get there talking with Pio. So this will be your second appearance on the show. Why don't you just tell, remind people who you are and what you do? Work in the pre-hospital arena in Oslo Hems at the rescue helicopter and the physician man car split time. And including that, we also do some one in six weeks indoors, plain anesthesia. All right. Now, last time you were on, we really discussed that I think almost everyone out there in the world was interpreting arterial line waveforms during cardiac arrest in a completely incongruous and incorrect manner. And I think you changed, we're talking to a really niche group here who are stupid yeah. enough to think you could place arterial lines during cardiac arrest. But of that group, I think you really changed people's minds about how to interpret. And a lot of changes, at least in my practice, came from that podcast. And I can never go back to interpreting by the numbers on the screen. Now, I think we're in a similar place with entitled CO2, which is what I wanted to talk to you about today, because we're just using it as a number on the screen and people are making both prognostic and quality of chest compression decisions based on this. And there's some wrinkles there that I think you are the perfect person to bring out. So maybe the first question I'd ask you is just walk us through the end tidal CO2 waveform during cardiac arrest and what we're actually seeing. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Scott, I think, and for the opportunity to come here to talk to you about this, because I think you're right. I think we are not paying enough attention to the curve and the trace itself and lending too much attention to the number on the screen. Because like with the arterial blood pressure problem or issue that we addressed last time, uh, it, it, it's important that the algorithm designed to capture the number on the screen uh, presented to you as entitled CO2. It's not designed specifically for the CPR setting. It's designed to work in mainly in anesthesia and possibly also for other purposes, monitoring during critical care in spontaneously breathing patients and so on. But the difference in the in CPR setting is that the curve is not alike. I actually showed some years ago that of 200 patients, half of them presented a curve that looked normal. It means that 
from the start of uh, the time trace where the curve is at zero, you have a steep rise to the alveolar plateau, which is a rarely a flat plateau, but increasing, slowly increasing plateau. And then an abrupt break, breaking point down to zero, which is defined, the breaking point down to zero is defined as the end tidal points in both the literature and also in the ISO standard. And this is, I mentioned that because that's a bit of the problem. So I'll also show that half of the other half of the patients did not have this typical curve. They had the trace that in various degrees reflected oscillations with the chest compressions at the alveolar plateau. And then to mark the breaking point down to zero, in this case, would be a bit more difficult sometimes because these oscillations may sometimes go all the way down to zero and then up again. And all of this makes interpretation of the CO2 for the algorithm not intended to do it a bit hard. And it gets wrong for us. All right, let me make sure I'm on the same page as you. When we have a patient we've intubated, we're seeing an entitled CO2 waveform, they have their expiration, you get that spike, you get a plateau, and if the patient's lungs are relatively normal, that line is gonna be pretty flat, and then you have the point where it drops back to zero, which you're calling the end tidal point. And you just look up at the CO2 at that point, And the number there is what the monitor is typically giving you. And we call that the end tidal CO2. Most people are looking at the waveform qualitatively and looking at the number quantitatively. And that number at that end tidal point is what we're calling the end tidal CO2. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. For to start somewhere, we need to consider, just let's consider the, the uh, curve profile that is that looks normal. Because the algorithm gets provided 40 numbers per second, 40 numbers per second. Like in an Excel sheet, it's a line of numbers down, starts from zero, goes up, rises slowly, and then abruptly go down to zero again. And actually, w one of the problems is that earlier, like with old older monitors, they would use the algorithm, the prior algorithm, ISO standard based algorithm, which means it, it basically did this. It, it found the zeros and then waited until it found a new zero. And then it just picked the highest numbers between these two zeros, which would be the top of the plateau at the end breaking point. But then for some reason, the ISO standard changed and newer devices would make an adaption to this. The newer and the current standard would go from zero to zero, then back one second and find the highest number within that second, which would be the same number in a, in a normal standard curve. So these two algorithms for half of the patients would not present different numbers. However, for the, for the traces, with the chest compression artifacts or the oscillations. And from now on, I'll try not to call them artifacts, I'll call them oscillations. For those who have these oscillations, sometimes they trend off a lot. And sometimes they don't trend it and keep the top, the peak of them keep in line with what the alveolar plateau seem to rise towards. Which means that in some patients, you could have numbers that varied from breath to breath a great deal. Mm. So I've seen in patients numbers rising from eight to 40 from breath to breath. 
because I get the loss number, the loss oscillation, that's the one that's captured or the mean of the two losses. That means that, and I think that clinicians who pay attention to the, to the screen on the monitor, they will have seen this, that the number really shifts a lot during CPR and it gets messy and you get this stable condition where this number is always trending down. So you're always presented with a kind of very low entitled CO2 value. But when you look at the monitor, it's clearly not the peak between related to the last expiration. That's the problem. So you, as an instigator of trouble, made us ignore yeah. the numbers on arterial blood pressure. And we actually had to look at the waveform and look at the yeah. end decompression pressure as our actual number that we were going to use. Are you telling us we have to do the same thing for end tidal CO2? Correct. Oh, gosh. Okay. Now, it's even more difficult for end tidal because the gradations are not as easily discerned. And you, at least in any system I've seen, you can't put bars there. Like, say, put a 20 millimeter of mercury bar and say, okay, as long as I can see the wave is higher than that line, then I'm feeling pretty good about my compressions. Do your monitors, are you able to even discern a number? Or are you just guessing, oh, it looks pretty close to 20, so I'm going with that? Like, how do you actually do this in the field? So in the field, well, that's also interesting because in the field, when I'm doing a CPR case pre-hospital, I get to choose where my monitor should be. So I place it close to me and as my role is to be the decision maker and to keep control of things. But I also need to place the arterial line and all of these things that I do. And right now we're doing this study with cerebral oxygen and everything. So it's a lot of things to do. So I really need to pay. If I, need to, if I want to pay attention to this, I need to see the monitor. I need to place it. So I spent a lot of time doing this, what's it called? Pit crew, pit crew setup yeah. just to get there. But when we're there, we can do that very rapidly. I do pay a fair amount of attention to the screen. But then, <clears throat> okay, what's most important to me is that that's, it varies a bit along the way. Early on, you're mostly interested in for the first entitled CO2 value after incubation, for example, or if you're first at the cardiac arrest. Then the first value you get, you will use it for kind of information to for clinical use. Okay, is it an asphyctic arrest? Is it likely if it's if it starts up out low and goes lower? Okay, is it what is this? Is an obstructive cause of this arrest? What's going on? So that's a clinical part, and then you end up in a phase where you wonder: Are my compressions effective? Do I do I compress the left ventricle properly? Do I compress deep enough and fast enough and all of that? And is my compression device in the right place? And for that phase, for the first few minutes, I would say, okay, keep the value about 20 millimeter mercury or let's say three kilopascal. If you're there, you're likely in a fairly good spot. If it's higher, it's nothing wrong with that. But if it's lower, you really need to rethink what's going on. But then after a few minutes, you enter this situation where if the patient don't get rusk by this point, let's say six, seven, eight minutes, it's a game of in incremental gains. And then things start to matter. And then I try to really focus in on values. What are the values? Uh, I can't just glance at the screen and just estimate. I need to be a bit more thorough. And then I would pay attention to where it goes with my intervention. What happens if I gain, if I gain no, a kilopascal or seven millimeters of mercury, it's good. But you need to have that kind of precision to what you're doing. There was a paper put out by some of the luminaries in the recess world, which was, I call it ACLS for actual recess doctors. And in that paper, they used a lot of Norm Paradis's work and others. And they said, if you can't place an art line, you could actually use that 
end tidal CO2 of 20 as an arbiter of the necessity of things like epinephrine, chest compression positioning, et cetera, similar to how we would use diastolic blood pressure if we had an art line. In your experience and reading every extent literature on this, being that this is your PhD thesis topic, what do you think about that? Is end tidal CO2 in some ways comparable to an arterial blood pressure for determining the necessity of things like epinephrine? Let's say for the first six, seven, eight minutes that I talk about, I think it is, okay, what to do, okay, you don't have anything else. And study after study seems to show that if you're above three kilopascal or 20 minutes mercury around there, the chance of ROSC is there, okay? And if you're not there, you very often get there by improving very coarse stuff, the chest compression fraction or frequency or fraction, paying attention to the ventilation and everything. You know, kind of this basic, getting your basic setup right. And then you usually get there. So I think for the early minutes, it's a fairly good guide. Entitled CO2 is a flow monitor of, any, if anything, it's a flow monitor. So it does not tell you necessarily what the blood pressure is and the perfusion pressures for the heart and the perfusion pressure for the brain. One thing, of course, we should mention that a patient who starts off high in end-tidal CO2 because there's some kind of asphyctic arrest or whatever, of course, he will start high and then you will ventilate, you will ventilate him down for the few, first few minutes. But he, these patients tend to end up high. So they end up kind of 40 to 60 millimeters of mercury. But after the first period, you will have, you will reach some kind of a steady state. And then you get into this in incremental gain. And then I think it's fairly to say that you can use entitled CO2, changes in entitled CO2 reflects changes in flow if your ventilation pattern is stable. All right. But there's one paper by Skulek et al. And in this, they took about 30 patients and did subcostal transthoracic ultrasound on them during compressions. What's interesting about it is two things. First of all, they found in 18 of these patients, they managed to get good enough pictures of the heart to estimate the degree of transverse compression. Okay, so let's say if you have a patient in trichlear fibrillation or asystole, then there's definitely no longitudinal contraction of the heart at all. So the transmission of the heart will be equal to the stroke volume of the heart. So what they found was that there was a linear color correlation, which is like the scientist's wet dream. No, linear correlations, yeah. So a linear correlation between the combined compression of the right and left ventricle and entitled CO2. Okay. That means that when the combined stroke volume of the right and the left heart increased, the entitled CO2 went up. But when they looked at the right heart compression alone or left heart compression alone, they didn't find this correlation. They needed both. Okay, all of this, the summary of this is that the right ventricle contributes to flow equally to the left, left ventricle, of course. That means that you can have Let's say you have 70% compression of the right heart and 30% of the left heart. You can have a decent entitled CO2. But the flow wave that generates is generated from the right heart will go to the pulmonary vasculature, be dampened, and be a flow uh, contributor. But the compression wave and the pulse wave will be less dominant in this case. So it won't tell you if you're hit. If you're getting the pressures right, it will tell you if you get the flow right. 
All right. That's fantastic. Let's pursue that thing you mentioned just now a little bit before we go back to Entitled CO2 because I, I find this so interesting. A lot of people are paying lots of money to get a transesophageal echo set up specifically for cardiac arrest. And I think if you have the money, it's worthwhile. I think it can be devoted to other places if you don't. What you just said is that Skulik was able to get transthoracic images during compressions simply by yeah. using the subcostal view that I think everyone in resuscitation is familiar with. What's been your experience? Have you been able to get good echo images to determine chest compression location just using transthoracic subcostal views? Yeah, we use this, or many of our doctors use this in every case. Uh, but we do some, we do some occasionals. Sometimes you get a perfect view. And sometimes, even if you compress the heart completely, you can get a really good view, which is interesting because, because it's not that intuitive that when you think about it, it's not something about the planes you're using. It's something about the forces that are involved and the way the heart will be compressed and moved. That, that you actually get this picture. But sometimes you can, other times you can't. But what I would say is that if you see the heart during compression and it's not moving, you're doing something wrong, okay? So that's one thing. So what to do, for example, in a chest compression or in a ventilation stop or in a circulatory stop, okay? Just keep the probe there, find the heart, centralize the left ventricle on the screen and just eyeball how deep is it on the screen. That would be the distance from the probe on the, the heart, the left ventricle is the distance from the probe. And the ultrasound is a distant measuring device. That's what it is. So that will be precise. So I will use that distance and then I will use the direction of the probe at that minute. And I will estimate where is the left ventricle time and time and time again. Very often it's just about moving piston or the hands of the provider two or three centimeters to the left. My, my, my boss. Yeah, the scientific boss, Lars Wick, is, is a bit scared of moving the hands all the way onto the chest cage and likes to keep on the sternum. But I have uh, with success moved further out. But what, what Lars is a bit skeptic about is the possibility to injure the heart, of course. And then even before that, you can do some, you can do some, some other assumptions. Okay. If you have an obese patient lying on the back, you can assume that his belly will push his diaphragm higher up. And with that, push the heart outwards to the left, okay? Pregnant people and so on. If you have a tall, slender COPD patient, for example, it will be the opposite. The diaphragm is pushed uh, downwards and then the heart lower down and more towards the center line, okay? So it's possible to do these kind of assumptions as well. But I often, even if I do that immediately when I arrive, I suggest that, okay, in this patient, we were here. And then I check with ultrasound. It's still this two or three centimeters. That it makes a lot of difference. And interestingly, I often find it does, it helps a lot more on the blood pressures and decompression pressures and the cerebral oximetry than it does on the entalcy. There you go. Okay. So that, what you just answered, was exactly what I was going to ask you next. So that was a fantastic prediction. So in places I don't have transesophageal echo, what I've just taken to doing because I am placing arterial lines is simply do a trial and just yeah. keep moving a few centimeters to the left a little bit up and just finding when my end decompression pressure is highest and then that's our spot. And so that works well. And I think it, it obviates one of the putative reasons to have transesophageal echo. You could just do that test if you place an art line. You're saying for end tidal 
Maybe not. If it goes up higher, it's probably better, but it may not represent in the opposite situation. You may be in the best position and not have the entitled CO2 actually rise. Is that correct? Yeah. Because I think sometimes you need to sacrifice a bit of right-sided compressions to uh, to gain left-sided compressions. And it's often a, a zero net, net zero game where you end up with, with a lot better uh, pulse waves activity. And uh, just to remind the listeners, because you did say this, but I really want to lock it in for them. The reason that could be happening is that right ventricular compression contributes to end tidal CO2, but not as great a contribution to the actual systemic pressures. So what you could have is a situation where the end tidal stays the same because the RV compression has gone down, therefore lowering the end tidal CO2, but the LV compression has gone up, which makes the systemic pressures better, but is a wash in terms of changing that CO2 level. Correct. Okay. That's that's what I tried to say. Yeah. <laughs> no, you said it. I just want to really emphasize for everyone. Okay. Let's shift gears back to end tidal CO2. What we've been talking about thus far is in a patient with no thoracic issues going on, we talk about instead of a rise, a nice flat wave, and then a drop, we have these CPR oscillations. They almost look like Bart Simpson's hair or or a crown that's very spiky, right? Like yeah. Throughout the entire plateau, it's not a plateau, it's up, down, up, down. And those downs could be all the way down to zero depending on CPR efficacy. And this was what was messing up the ability of the machine's algorithms to give you a number. So you have to look at the max value in that plateau and that should be what you consider your end title. But there's two new wrinkles here that I want you to explain because they're complicated. There's interthoracic airway closure and there's thoracic dis- distension. And this is the caviar group, which you like so much. Uh, they put out a paper on this recently. Tell me about these and how we could actually be using them during CPR. Oh, yeah. First of all, I need to say I'm a big fan of those. And, I, and I, I'm probably not the right guy to explain what they are doing. But uh, okay, so let's just try. And then I guess they can they can have their shot and correct me at another moment, I hope. Okay, so... To understand this, I think we need to we need some mental model. Let's say we have a very average patient, okay, and then that suffers a cardiac arrest after a typical case of a heart attack and then ventricular fibrillation. Okay, that's the setting. And before this patient gets his cardiac arrest, he will have an average of about three liter of air in his lungs when he's done breathing. That's the functional residual capacity. So it's leftover air when you're done breathing. It's what's filling your lungs when you're not, when you're done exhaling. And so when, when this patient has fallen over and gets attended by the practitioners or the CPR providers, of course, before they provide the first ventilation, we can assume that there is three liters of gas in his lungs already. With chest compressions, and especially when chest compressions are, has been going on for a while, and, and the chest wall has, we have all these rib fractures, and we get injuries to the pulmonary tissues, then this functional residual capacity drops. At some point, when a, a lung cannot reinflate by decompression of the chest because it's been collapsed inside the lung, you will have this situation that when you provide a ventilation of 400 milliliters onto the now new residual capacity of two liters, you will open the lung and then it will get CO2 out. And then it will, the small bronchioles 
and the small part, the small tub- tubules of the lung will collapse. So we'll ha- you will have collapse. You you will have gas captive distal to this collapse, which does not communicate with the gas that is in the central airways. Okay, so that is the first concept. And the next concept, which I don't think, so I will introduce now a concept that I'm a bit worried that I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure how much attention the caviar group pays to this, but so let's consider the gas that is left in the central airways above, above the collapsed bronchioles. This will be a tubule or tubule of CO2 containing gas, which extends up through the airway device, let's say the endotracheal tube, and all the way up to the, the ventilation bag. Okay, and then there's a valve. But this valve, and this valve is the, ex- in this setting, it's an expiration valve. But since there's no communication from the distal part of the lung to the central part, there's so little movement in this gas that you won't push anything else. So, between the endotracheal tube and the ventilation bag, that's where you capture the entire CO2 reading. CO2 measurements are done there. And they're connected, so it's, they're part of the tube. So they're in this tube. So until we provide a new ventilation, there won't be any change in this gas, which means that when we do provide a ventilation and relieves the CO2 containing gas out, then you can get this, and this is why I told you that, why I've used the term, the normal looking entitled CO2. Because this will end up in a normal looking entitled CO2. It goes up, it plateaus, but the plateau remains high for six seconds, which is a lot, which is a lot longer than the expiration takes. And actually in the paper that you are referring to, you can see the flow pattern in, in some of the pigs that they have tried and also in the cadavers that they have used. And when you see the time the flow needs the, or the tidal volume needs to escape, it's two seconds. So the end tidal point is at two seconds, but we measure the point at six seconds. Okay, so that's one thing. But this is what would be a kind of a normal plateau, but it's not normal because... I'm going to put the pictures in. It'll help, I think, yeah, really yeah, elucidate. And then... The next problem is that, okay, what you would expect is that when you're thumping on the chest, there would be movement of the gas. And actually, Peter Safar discovered this already back in the 70s when they had this canine experiments and then felt with his wrist that, okay, some of these dogs obviously get gas out with each compression, promising for chest compressions to be part of the gas exchange mechanism. But some dogs do, don't. So he... Started, he invented the concept of distal airways collapse, and this is what I've been following up on. So the caviar group with Grieco a few years ago, they did a study where they found that, okay, if you apply heat in this situation, then you will suddenly get back the oscillations, okay? Indicating that now you can move the column of gas and for ventilating the patient, for making chest compressions part of the ventilatory component during CPR and getting with more and more CO2. Okay, that would be a good thing. Yeah, so 
that's the airway closure. Yeah, let's pause there before we go on to distension. Distension, I think, is a much easier to understand concept and why the wave is that it is. Let me interrogate you a little bit more about this wave. I'm looking at the picture right now, and I'll put it in the show notes. And what is, as you say, it's, it looks pretty much like a normal end tidal CO2 waveform. But in the animal study portion, it was actually a higher end tidal CO2 overall than the others. Is that just an anomaly of their experimental model, or would we expect to have higher than expected entitled CO2 values. I think that when in, okay, remember that chest compressions are ongoing, even if you don't see them, of course, in the plateau. So what's happening is that distal to the, distal to the airway closure, you will fill up with CO2 into the distal part of the lung, and then you ventilate it go down and collect this. Uh, and you haven't had any, the chest compression hasn't ventilated anything of this out. So you're actually comparing two different ventilation patterns. Even if you, your ventilation is very stable, and in this study, they did mechanical. They also did studies on humans, and they used mechanical ventilators. So very precise and very probably very similar ventilations between patients and during this, the case. But yeah, I think you're comparing two different ventilation patterns. That's why the antioxidant will be more up-concentrated, because you ventilate less. All right. And now you said clinically and it makes sense, is to increase the FRC to get those airways to stay open throughout the ventilatory cycle. We're actually going to add PEEP, which you know, is a counterintuitive move for most cardiac arrest ventilation. And there have been some studies showing a benefit, and perhaps this is why. Perhaps there is a group of patients that actually benefits from having a positive end expiratory pressure, and this would be the one. So if you see a waveform where the oscillations are not there, and they yeah. should be. Like what you're expecting shouldn't look normal. It should look like a very different waveform during cardiac arrest. So if it looks normal, there's no oscillations, yeah. that might be an indication to add PEEP to the mix. Are you doing this yeah, correctly that, that is I, uh, that Okay, so the, I guess the caviar group would say, hold on, this is experimental for now. But I intuitively, I do agree. And what I really like with them is that they are very hard, hardly trying to find the sweet spots that I think all of us, to do a cardiac arrest clinically, feel that is somewhere okay around 300 milliliters, 400 milliliters. But we also intuitively understand that it, it, this has to vary between patients because sometimes you, in rare cases, for example, you, you get you, you change the ventilation pattern and uh, sometimes you have the post-ox wave there and sometimes just plummets yeah. because of something you thought was smart. And so I really like the idea of that this sweet spot is truly a balance, balancing art to find, I think, at least if you should, if what they are suggesting is true. Because they, okay, the art of decompressing the chest abruptly and, and with a full lift of the chest, or like with, with some of the chest compression devices to manage to, to lift the chest, it's for it to be effective in pulling back blood. It needs to be some kind of resistance for the gas to come into the patient. Because otherwise, you will mostly pull air, okay? And that is, that is the sweet spot that they are looking for when you're pulling blood and you're not pulling gas. And then if the functional residual capacity is too low, way too low, and it's below the airway opening index points, then what would happen is that you get a very compressed lung that will hinder the decompression by itself. Okay, so it's too heavy to lift the chest and too much of the energy will go not to pull blood, 
but to lift the lung. And if it's too much gas in the lung and the, the, gas, the airways all the way down are open, what will happen is that when you are decompressing the chest, you are not pulling blood, you are pulling gas, which would be good for gas exchange, but not for circulation. So it's this balance. And they do suggest that you can spot this in uh, entitled, uh, or in the capnographic waveform. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the last pattern here, the pattern of thoracic distension, the pattern of overventilation. Now, this one for the listeners, and again, I so recommend going to the show notes and actually looking at it. It looks typical of a cardiac arrest entitled waveform, with the difference being at the beginning, there are not these oscillations. And then at some point during the expiratory cycle, the oscillations of the compressions actually begin. So what's going on here, Pio? Yeah. So that would be the situation where the opposite situation of the one we discussed first, where at this point you have oscillations going on and, and then you provide a big breath. Okay. And then when you're letting gas out, remember the evacuation of gas is always interrupted by the chest compressions. And you end up in a situation where you're way above the functional residual caps. So in this situation, you suddenly pull, you will suddenly be pulling gas in instead of blood. But the way to, the way to interpret it in my head is that, okay, when I give a breath and this breath is so big that what I get back is that I get clear dominance from the CO2 column out on that is so dominant that chest compressions disappear. It's probably too, if the caviar group is right, this is too much. I should have given a smaller volume. And if, and this can be traced for each breath. So that's the beauty of it. If I spend some time with that, I can get the feel, okay, how much does these patients need to not have this dominance of the CO2 too much. So there's two ways to, what they're saying is actually there's two ways to get to the pattern that they find is best for, best for circulation, namely the pattern that has most oscillations. And one way is to increase PEEP, extreme, what's it, what it called, extrinsically, yeah, or by just adding one or two big breaths and then increasing the internal PEEP, that is how I, uh, I understand it, and then try to find the sweet spot where you have as much oscillations as possible. All right. Last wrinkle on end title that I have <laughs> on my list, and then you could tell me what things I should have asked. Um, There's one final thing to this, which is there are a few studies have been, have been looking at entitled so what happens when you give epinephrine, okay? Because if it's a good flow detector and if epinephrine affects flow, you would suspect that and the, re the peak reading would decrease. And actually that's what happens. So if you have a patient, let's say it's ventricular fibrillation and the peak CO2 reading rises to, let's say 30, and then you provide epinephrine well, after a minute or two, after one minute, for example, you can see a clear downwards trend. Okay. Let's say you had 30, now you have 26, 25. Okay. It will be a clear indication that this patient's response to epinephrine. And that is what you want. Because the response of epinephrine, and that is what Lars Wieck, for example, has shown that the response of epinephrine is flow dependent. The faster the flow, the faster, tighter the bolus that enters the periphery, 
this. And the effect will increase by just by increasing. So that is one, that is one trick. Okay. If you don't have anything else okay, and you wonder where am I? Okay. You can assume that you have an effect on the blood pressures by epinephrine if you have a downward strain. And that is, I guess, uh, that's when I said, okay, it's not always like the higher number is better. All right. Well, let's really break that out so that everyone listening could really understand. So what you're saying is in a patient where you actually have an effect of epinephrine, what you're going to see is a clamping down of the periphery, which yeah. is now going to decrease flow that generates end tidal CO2. But that's actually useful because what you're yeah. doing is ostensibly increasing the diastolic blood pressure on the heart, which is why you're giving the epinephrine in the first place. Is that correct yeah. so far? Yeah, you're deep. So that, that's the only reason to give, at least in ventricular fibrillation and asystole, the only reason to give epinephrine is to redistribute uh, that flow towards the heart and the brain. So we will stop the overall flow and direct more of it by hindering it a bit in the periphery and the legs. You will direct more of it to the brain, which does not contract its vessel in the same way as a response to epinephrine. So the, it will go there, but the overall resistance will increase a bit. Yep. And the flow will therefore go just a bit. The overall flow will go a bit down. Oh, it, you're saying if you give the epi and you don't see that decrease in end tidal CO2, essentially what it's telling you is the epi's not really doing anything on this particular patient. Yeah. Or maybe for this patient, even if I have the even after point measurement of 30, maybe if I do something, I could have a point measurement of 60 and then I would get this effect of really compressing too high or too low on the chest. If you don't see that and entitled CO2 is the only thing you have to work with, I would suspect correctly that something odd is going on. I should see a decrease, a slight decrease with epinephrine. And then, okay, try to change something, try and even, especially in patients that you suspect that are hypovolemic, or, okay, you need to do something because- Core has told us we can't use end title for prognosis at this point based on their reading of the current evidence. Now, a lot of that may be all of the wrinkles that we discussed in the course of this podcast, but what is your take right now? Are you using end title for prognostic value or no? I use it as a, as a data point in my- one data point and it's weaker, it's weaker than a lot of the other data points. If it's really low, and especially in the traumatic cases, if it's zero, I've seen zero. Okay. Uh, then sure that the anyway, the lungs are fine. It's, it's just no blood going around. Yep. Okay. Then it's been a stronger decision point, but otherwise I'm very careful with it, especially, and just to said it, especially because some of the patients that we can save are young patients with pulmonary embolism. And in this case, their readings can be really low for a really long time. And that is, you cannot make that kind of coarse statements about what number is correct. All right, Pia, what question should I have asked you that we haven't covered yet? It could be about end tidal CO2 or cardiac arrest monitoring in general. What do you want to get out there? No, I, I think you asked very good questions and I think I've been pushed far before beyond my competency here. So. Please take anything with, with a, a grain of salt. These are considerations based on, on my practice and what we've seen in the data set from my studies. So to, to make a final statement, we should stop calling it entirely CO2, what we're measuring. We are measuring pre-tidal CO2. <laughs> but that's the final statement. All right. I love it. 
All right, man. Now I'm sure you'll discover new stuff in the next year or so, and we'll have to have you back on again. But I can't thank you enough for coming on this time. As always, it is educational and eye-opening. Really fun to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, that conversation was amazing. I mean, you know, this is the kind of stuff I salivate over that, you know, really learning the intricacies of the devices we use, how they work, uh, really delving to a deeper level than the expectation is for resuscitation. That's that's what MCRIT is all about. So this was, wow, uh, just an amazing conversation. Now, I will say, you know, I'll caution people, everything we spoke about in terms of these uh, new patterns and actually taking clinical action on them, they are in the nascent stages. I mean, th this research that was done by the Caviar Group was in pigs and corpses, cadavers rather. Um, so, you know, if you're going to decide to use that, understand you're, you're, out there on the very cutting edge. And now I will say like we're, what we have as our baseline for what we're doing already has very little evidence either. You know, it's one of these scenarios where maybe even though this evidence is not what you'd want, you know, a randomized controlled trial, um, it makes physiologic sense. And what we're already doing, you know, just standardized for every patient has no basis uh, whatsoever. In fact, a lot of the Intimations from studies say that the standard, you know, just continuous ventilations, one breath every six seconds actually may be deleterious, you know, so um, you have to make your own judgment, you know, talk to your buddies and figure out, you know, how you want to use this information, if at all. But I think at least now getting a better cognizance of what's going on in front of you in the monitor, that it's not just a number, the waveform actually matters more than anything else, and that there's different patterns of that waveform uh, will cue you to the fact that something may be going on with your patient. As, and in terms of what you choose to do with that information, that's completely up to you. Whew, okay. This was a long one, but I think it was worth it. Uh, until next month, I will now put my ritual uh, discussion of medicine coaching for a second here. You know, what I would like to focus on this month is like one of my favorite aspects of coaching, which is productivity coaching, you know, actually taking a uh, system that I saw, you know, 20 years ago, getting things done. Uh, but having it molded it over those years to my own way that I think works much better and much easier and much less uh, rigor and and pain and having to manage a system which becomes work in itself. I got rid of all that. Um, and so what I like to coach on is a very uh, modulated version of a productivity system that I think is just effortless. It's easy. It's stress-free. It brings joy. And you don't have to spend a lot of time working at it. It just kind of happens on its own. It takes a little upfront investment. And then after that, it just ticks along and keeps you where you want to go for your true goals and values. So if you're interested in that, uh, contact me at mcrit.org slash coaching, mcrit.org slash coaching, and uh, we'll get something set up. This has been Scott Weingart from the MCRIT Podcast saying bye-bye.